Welcome to Talk Lex, a podcast dedicated to common sense discussion of legal issues facing everyday people. Brought to you by Derazio Peterson. For more information, visit Deraziopeterson.com. All right, welcome to another episode of Talk Lex. I'm Scott Peterson here with Joanna today. We are going to do a potpourri uh, episode discussing some recent legal stories. Uh, starting off with a, an article that just hit the news yesterday about a significant settlement uh, in, in a gun manufacturer case against Remington in Connecticut uh, arising out of the Sandy Hook shooting uh, several years ago. So why don't you give us some background and to kind of tell us what happened in the case? So this is a case that has been pending for a long time. Um, some families of victims of the Sandy Hook shooting sued Remington, which is the manufacturer of the gun that was used in the shooting. Um, they had all sorts of claims. The lawsuit was originally dismissed completely by a court in Connecticut due to the application of a federal statute that basically protects gun manufacturers and dealers from liability when the gun is being used for its intended purpose, which is shooting something or someone. Um, We'll talk a little bit about how that is kind of an unprecedented level of immunity being given to, you know, an entire industry. But um, ultimately, that case was appealed and the Connecticut uh, high level appellate court affirmed the dismissal of a lot of the claims under that federal statute, but did allow a claim under Connecticut law to continue. And that was a reckless marketing claim. Um, And, you know, so the case stayed uh, in litigation for the last few years. Um, I believe the case was initiated, you know, at least um, as far back as 2017. Um, And then ultimately, it looks like this week, uh, was settled for $73 million, which is the full insurance policy. I guess they had four different insurance policies um, that were triggered by this case, and that was the policy limit of each one. So there's kind of a lot to unpack with this case. Um, first of all, this is this is pretty unprecedented, right? I mean, you don't see many cases arising out of school shootings against gun manufacturers. I mean, that's that's generally because of that immunity that you talked about. It's it's generally almost impossible to, to pursue those kinds of cases. Isn't that that's true? Yeah, I mean, I, I think this this is potentially, as far as I know, the first one. Um, and, and then it's, I think, you know, over the years, there's been sort of interesting legal scholarship on treating gun cases almost like a products liability case. And I think that's kind of what um, a little bit of the angle that this case took with this, uh, you know, reckless marketing um, claim that they made. But yes, ultimately, the effect of that federal statute is to prevent these types of lawsuits from happening in the first place. So just to be clear, when we talk about liability for reckless marketing, the the claims against the gun manufacturer aren't you manufactured a gun that is inherently dangerous and therefore you are responsible for the or to the victims of uh, or the families of the victims of the shooting. It's that you knew or should have known that the way that you marketed these guns to a young 
and potentially at-risk demographic uh, made it more likely than not that something like this was going to happen and was foreseeable and you could have prevented uh, the marketing at least and made some difference. That's that's essentially what they were alleging in the case, right? Yes. And I think ultimately, from my understanding of some of the articles that came out yesterday, is that um, sometimes you know a settlement can include some type of confidentiality or something like that. My understanding is that these um, documents that were obtained in discovery are actually going to be made public. So I think that will shed a little bit more light on it because, you know, these can be these types of lawsuits can be controversial. You know, a lot of people who no matter how sort of compassionate they are to the victims of gun violence really staunchly believe that no one is responsible other than the actual perpetrator of the crime. Um, what what I am sort of hoping and maybe anticipating is that these documents may end up shedding some light on what these companies are doing that is ultimately, you know, wrong in the eyes of the law, which is potentially targeting, um, you know, disturbed people with a propensity for violence. Um, and, and I don't think this is necessarily totally unprecedented. I mean, it might be in the gun context, but, you know, we have people are a lot more attention is like the opioid crisis and, you know, big tobacco before kind of like, how are these um, dangerous products being pushed on the people who are the most vulnerable to abuse them. Um, so I think this is kind of going to end up being ultimately like in that category of types of scenarios. Yeah, I just finished reading a book about the Sackler family um, and the opi- and their role in the opioid crisis uh, as the owners of Purdue Pharma um, and who is the maker of, or manufacturer of OxyContin and. It was a very similar uh, approach, I think, in that, you know, they they obviously didn't, you know, create the pain that these people were having and they didn't, you know, tell anyone directly to abuse it. But they what they found out through investigation was that they internally marketed to areas uh, where that were essentially ripe for and and populations that were ripe for abuse uh, and didn't. May, didn't provide accurate information to physicians and pharmacists or consumers about the addictive properties of the medication. Uh, and so that's sort of a, a similar theory to, to what was happening here. And I understand that, you know, a lot of people listening and a lot of people who uh, read our posts about this are, you know, very pro Second Amendment. And we're certainly not suggesting that, you know, there's, there's no value to those arguments. I completely understand them. Uh, but this is a different scenario. And this is not a situation where anyone, you know, lawsuits are going to force gun manufacturers under, uh, you know, under, or they're going to ruin the the business. It's, it's the opposite. It should mean that this is going to make marketing more safe uh, and make companies understand that, you know, they have to be a little bit more cautious because these things are dangerous. And so uh, it'll be interesting to see, you know, how this all plays out. One thing I want to clear up, and we talk often about misleading information, you know, we we made a post about this on our Facebook page, and there were some comments about, you know, that this this the jury made a mistake here, and this is setting a bad precedent. And to be clear, this is a settlement. This is not a jury trial. It means Remington made an internal calculation, or their insurance company, that there was more risk to them in moving forward with the trial than there was to settling the claims. Uh, and they paid seventy three million dollars to settle these claims. Um, the insurance companies did so. 
that was a calculated decision. They they made a risk benefit assessment and determined that you know if a jury got a hold of this, it could potentially go really far south. Uh, so um, it's important to understand the distinction of what's happening there. And am I correct that the company actually filed for bankruptcy before these cases settled? Yeah, I think they have filed for bankruptcy at some point along the way. But yeah, I mean, ultimately, you know, they had insurance for these claims and it's the insurance companies who ultimately decided to, you know, pay this out. And I I think that um, makes me also sort of curious as to what these documents are eventually going to show um, that they felt that there was a significant risk that a jury could hit them with a lot more than $73 million based on potentially the information that would have come out about um, how they marketed, um, you know, these types of weapons to not only civilians, but potentially um, a category of civilians that were more at risk to uh, commit a mass shooting. Yeah, it's it's an interesting case. Um, we, we can talk about it another day, but you know, the, it, it was really a benefit that there was insurance coverage here because it's not unusual for companies facing these massive lawsuits to file for bankruptcy. And that's that's what Purdue Pharma did in the Oxycontin cases as well. Um, and so, you know, the that often leaves uh, the plaintiffs sort of stuck blowing in the wind. But the fact that there was insurance coverage helped. You know, to bring this thing to a conclusion and, you know, obviously the, no, no amount of money is going to bring back anybody's children, but hopefully it does help set an example and try to, you know, make these companies understand that there may be implications. And I understand, again, that this is a hot, you know, hot potato in terms of how people feel and that people feel very strongly about it. But, you know, just to, just to be clear, like we said, this is not a case that's attempting to infringe on anyone's Second Amendment rights. Um, it's it's very different. Um so anything else on that before we talk about our next topic? Um, no, I just think that, you know, a lot of times when we post about this, we get a lot of um, pushback sort of defending the um, gun manufacturers. And I always think it's a little bit interesting when people seem to have kind of more compassion for a giant company Um you know, than you would necessarily expect. But I think it is important in that context to sort of familiarize yourself with the law that ultimately 99.9% of the time is going to protect these companies from even being sued in the first place, which means that these big companies have more protection from liability than you do and regular old people do and mom and pop businesses do. Um, it's really kind of an unprecedented level of just immunity from um, even being sued in the first place. So I think it's important when we're, you know, maybe thinking to ourselves, I feel sorry for this big gun manufacturer, then you can kind of tell yourself that they're actually a lot more protected than you are. Yeah, $73 million is a lot of money, but um, to the, you know, the, the, the players in this, relatively speaking, it's probably not. All right, moving on. Um, Sarah Palin has reared her head again uh, and had a lawsuit against the New York Times um, for defamation uh, and libel, I believe, uh, which was this past week came to a head when the judge, um, the trial judge indicated that he was prepared to dismiss the claims um, that Sarah Palin had made against the Times uh, and 
nonetheless let the case go to a jury who also dismissed the claims, um, finding essentially that Ms. Palin had not shown that the Times had acted with actual malice in publishing stories uh, about her that she found to be offensive. Any thoughts on this one? No, I mean, I think people were, um, you know, watching this case pretty closely because it's rare for a libel case against um, a news publication to even make it this far to the trial stage because the actual malice standard is pretty high. And, you know, for many years, um, there's been sort of a recognition in the court precedent that newspapers and news outlets need to have, you know, a little bit of leeway in publishing, you know, information as it comes to them um, that may ultimately in the long run end up not being 100% accurate. Um, So they have this pretty high First Amendment protection where if you're a public figure um, and something is published about you that is untrue, the newspaper had to have done that with this quote unquote actual malice. Um, So, you know, that's a high standard to meet. And the judge did not feel sort of as a what we call as a matter of law um, that that standard had been met. Um, So regardless of how the jury was going to come out, um, the judge was going to dismiss the claim. But ultimately, you know, the jury went the same way. Um, And, you know, if they will probably be an appeal. Uh, as a as a trial lawyer, this is uh, the the whole way this played out was kind of interesting. Though the judge sort of showed his hand before the jury even finished deliberating. I think um, he probably didn't do it in front of the jury, but I I wonder if uh, the jurors got any wind of that um, before finishing their deliberations. In any event, you know I've personally litigated some defamation cases of, over the course of my career, uh, including trying trying them and. They're, they're very hard cases to win. And so um, especially if you're someone who's considered a public figure, because as Joanna said, the, the, the law is very tough against people who put themselves out into the public uh, in terms of what can be said about them. Um, and I, I suppose it's fair to some degree because most of what they say is, is left unchecked um, on, on both sides of the aisle. But uh, the, the media has a, has a, pretty good protection when it comes to, you know, what they can and can't say. It's interesting in the, you know, the evolving landscape of media, you know, what, who, who is and is not considered to be a, you know, a, a media publishing company for the purposes of these protections. Um, because, you know, nowadays most people or many people get their news from different sources. Um, many of whom are not considered historically to be like media outlets. Um, you think about people getting their news from podcasts or, Substack newsletters or those kinds of things. Um, you know, the, the the Joe Rogan situation comes to mind, although I'm not sure that we're going to get into that today. We may get into it another week. But um, yeah, so uh, Ms. Palin was sent home packing. Uh, we'll see what happens on appeal. I don't see this being a situation where this gets reversed. The law is pretty well settled on this. And one of the first cases you learn in that area is the New York Times v. Sullivan case, which established this actual malice. Uh, standard, uh, and that hasn't really changed despite efforts by, um, you know, some in the political world to do that. So any other comments on that one? No, I mean, just a little ironic because it's a First Amendment protection and we hear a lot about free speech in the news right now. And this is a case that is trying to curb uh, a pretty significant First Amendment protection. 
Um, you know, I get it. I agree that if something is totally false and it was published with, you know, actual malice as the standard is, then, you know, that's wrong. There needs to be some recourse for people to have completely false things published about them. But I, I thought that was a little bit of kind of an interesting twist to it, because, again, we hear a lot about free speech. And often when we hear about free speech, it's mentioned in the context of people giving information that is factually false. Um, you know, so it's, it's a little bit of an interesting conversation. Yeah. And that, you know, that does bring me back to the Joe Rogan situation for those who are, are familiar. Uh, and for those who aren't essentially, um, a couple of weeks ago, uh, Neil Young, Joni Mitchell, and some other artists pulled their music from Spotify because, uh, they felt that the Joe Rogan podcast had, um, perpetuated some vaccine misinformation and, and COVID misinformation. Um, as someone who listens to a lot of podcasts, I've listened to Rogan episodes here and there over the years. Uh, sometimes I think they're great. Sometimes I think they're foolish. Um, but I approach them with the idea that not everything that I hear on there is necessarily going to be, you know, 100% accurate. It's it's the opinion of the people who are on there. Um, and so uh, Netflix removed some of his episodes, but in the end stood by and, and essentially said, you know, he should balance the content, but it's it's ultimately up to the listener to make a determination as to what's accurate and what's not. Um, again, the irony sort of here is that a lot of people in the Sarah Palin type camp came to Rogan's defense in this kind of a situation. And I think understandably saying, you know, he has the right to say uh, what he wants and people have the right to listen or not listen as they see fit. Um, you know, it's is a private company. It's not the government who's trying to restrict any kind of speech. So it's a bit of a distinction that I think is missed. But in any event, um, free speech, I suppose, prevails in both of those situations, right? Yeah. And I mean, and ultimately, you know, I think his podcast stayed up for the most part um, and, you know, wasn't really, I don't necessarily think an issue of, like you said, government censorship or anything like that. You know, Sarah Palin's situation, um, you know, a First Amendment the First Amendment is triggered in a lawsuit context because the courts are stepping in in the role of the government. Um, so, you know, it, some things are more of just kind of a conversation about what we should do and what we shouldn't do as private businesses. And then other things are, you know, when is the government stepping in and the First Amendment is actually triggered. All right. So one more topic, our misleading headline of the week. Uh, and this revolves goes back to the COVID discussion, because it seems like everything does these days, um, into masks. Um, and this, our disclaimer is we are not giving you an opinion about masks or, or whether or not they should be worn in schools or in public buildings or what states should do. What we're talking about today is the mask mandates in New York, which was actually recently lifted. Um, but before it was, uh, there was a there were some conflicting decisions uh, at the state level courts about whether the mandates were constitutional. Um, and I think where we're getting at with the misleading headlines is that everywhere you looked, if you followed any of the comments of people discussing the court decisions, um, many of them said something to the effect of, well, the Supreme Court said that this is unconstitutional and therefore I don't have to wear a mask. That is not accurate. Uh, well, I suppose that is accurate, but it's not entirely accurate. Do you want to explain why? Yes. Well, just on the Supreme Court issue, this is a little bit confusing, I think, if, for, if you're not actually a practicing lawyer in some sense, because 
in New York, the Supreme Court is the lowest court. Um, the highest court in New York is the Court of Appeals. Um, so some news articles that I saw myself never made any distinction of, you know, this is the Nassau County Supreme Court or anything like that. They just said Supreme Court. They didn't identify, you know, where it came from or anything like that. So I think that can be a little bit confusing in people thinking that this was kind of potentially of a more significant decision than it actually was. Um, I think what also got lost in the reporting was the fact that another quote unquote Supreme Court had come to exactly the opposite conclusion. Um, and first that never made it, you know, really into the news um, because it probably wasn't considered to be as newsworthy at the time. Um, you know, so these are just sort of situations where sometimes the reporting of, you know, legal decisions can create confusion because you know, you can't put, you know, they're not necessarily putting a ton of nuance or a ton of, you know, legal explanation into their articles. And, you know, unfortunately, people sort of relied on the headline and, you know, allowed that to kind of impact their behavior. And I know that, you know, in our community that set off some issues in schools and, and stuff like that. And, you know, I'm not saying that the government um, you know, or anybody else really handled it appropriately in terms of getting that information out to people to prevent confusion. Um, but that was definitely, I think, an example of something blowing up in the news and people actually acting on it um, that was sort of confusing. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it, it is confusing. Um, but, you know, just to reiterate, the Supreme Court in New York is not the highest court. It's the trial level court. It's the court where we go and we try cases, malpractice cases, personal injury cases, employment cases. So, um, and if you don't like their decision, you have to appeal it. Uh, and so, you know, one court's decision in Long Island at a Supreme Court level uh, does not in and of itself establish the policy for the state of New York. So um, in any event, I think this is all becoming moot, uh, given that the mass mandate has now been lifted and it appears that uh, you know, within the next couple of weeks, the school mandate will be lifted. It may come up again if, you know, another variant comes along and the numbers change and they start to implement these mass mandates again. Uh, it seems like um, they're having more and more difficulty uh, getting public compliance, but that's a whole nother topic for another day. Uh, so, you know, wanted to clarify that because it does often mislead people. And I, again, as Giovanna said, I think it's through no fault of their own. It's just that if you're not in the system, why would you know the distinction between the two? Um, so any other comments for this week? Nope. Nope. All right. So, uh, thanks for listening. We'll be back again soon. Uh, any questions hit us up on Instagram, uh, or visit our website, DeraziOPeterson.com.